The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes, and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear from Lionel Shriver on how the Biden's administration border policies are a gift for Trump and the Republicans. Kit Wilson on what we can expect from Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse. Peter Hannington on his love of haikus. And finally, Robert Porter's notes on the bagpipes. First up, Lionel Shriver. Brace yourselves for Kamala Harris versus Donald Trump 2024 by Lionel Shriver. For Democrats, like the insurrection of January 6th, the Trump policy of separating illegal immigrant parents from their children in 2018 has been the political gift that's kept on giving ever since. In 2020, the conspicuously inhumane protocol provided a rallying cry for candidates in the primaries and later for Biden as nominee. True, the policy did have a rationale beyond sheer sadism. American law restricts the number of days border agents may detain the underaged, and likewise constrains children's deportation. As migrants are better versed on American immigration statutes than most lawyers, savvy incomers, meaning most incomers, were rocking up on U.S. soil with kids in tow, not always their own, as guarantees of release from custody, leaving them in the country home free. If children were dealt with independently, at least the parents could be sent packing. Never mind its moral dubiety, family separation was a political catastrophe. Although minors were confined by the same chain link that encloses basketball and tennis courts, the Dems' incessant charge that Trump put children in cages entailed inspired branding. Detention facilities are for people. Cages are for animals. Trump chucked his zero-tolerance policy of May 2018 by June, but the damage was done. For years, the New York Times and PBS NewsHour continued to run long packages about traumatized immigrant children and their enduring mental health problems. For voters in both parties, the spectacle of lonely, runny-nosed four-year-olds whimpering in bewilderment over why they'd been abandoned triggered harrowing early memories of getting parted from a parent at an amusement park and crying, Mommy! One would think that when the opposition bestows you with such an invaluable present, boxed, wrapped in shiny foil, and beribboned with a bow, you wouldn't smash it up, much less give it back. Last week's leaked news about the suit settlements being negotiated between the Biden administration and previously separated families, some represented by the American Civil Liberties Union, 
was the best thing to happen to Fox commentator Tucker Carlson for years. The final figures are still uncertain, but it's mooted that individuals suffering psychic harm from Trump's family separation are in line for $450,000 apiece. Families could average compensation of a million dollars. With 5,500 children estimated to have been affected, the total payout could easily exceed a billion dollars. The ACLU is demanding not just roughly $3.4 million per family instead, but also a path to citizenship, while the Biden team is more likely to offer a three-year parole, during which plaintiffs could legally live and work in the U.S. But never mind the technicalities. Guests of the nation tooling around in Mercedes AMGs with heated seats would never be deported. Most Americans don't fancy rewarding the violation of their laws on such a scale. Practically, too, they recognize that headlines about thousands of illegal immigrants winning such an eye-popping lottery jackpot would act as a further come-hither for millions more foreigners with itchy feet. The U.S. already entices incomers with higher wages, government benefits, and a sunnier future for offspring. Now, maybe you'll get lucky, and the Border Patrol will do or say something disagreeable. Presto, the great and the good at the ACLU will make you a millionaire. Accordingly, in response to this story, Fox News hosts have been falling all over themselves to top one another's indignation. But they don't really look indignant. They look so happy they could weep. In the Wall Street Journal, the news report, U.S. in talks to pay hundreds of millions to families separated at border, immediately hit the most popular list at number one. It was already a contest whether the shambolic withdrawal from Afghanistan or the accelerating free-for-all at America's southern border, qualifies as the bigger black eye for Biden. This latest media godsend for Republicans may shift the balance towards the latter. Readers of this column will hardly be surprised that I advocate controlled immigration. So the prospect of dangling a piñata bursting with more than a billion dollars on the American side of the Rio Grande obviously causes me some distress. The stampede to America's South could soon make the New York City Marathon look like a knitting circle power-walking around Gramercy Park. But readers should also know by now that I revile Trump. So my distress is increasingly focused on the big picture. Such an obscenely generous settlement wouldn't only amount to an excessive reward for breaking American laws. It would also re-gift the Dems' PR advantage to Donald Trump. And this is a story that fires up a wider swath of the public than his minority base, including the independents who swing elections. No sooner is the last presidential contest over than, like most Americans, I'm eyeing the next one. In my broadly shared dread that Republicans will nominate you-know-who again, I sometimes postulate desperately 
maybe we'll all be saved by a deus ex machina, and the previous poser in the White House will be struck by some debilitating ailment. I'd settle for incurable laryngitis. Or maybe the guy could break out in hard, goitrous globules of insoluble lard. After all, when the supermodel Linda Evangelista had this adverse reaction to a fat-freezing procedure, she became a shut-in. Yeah, yeah, I did say I was desperate. And for a novelist, resorting to divine intervention constitutes piss-poor plotting. The thing is, I'm not the first to suppose that Biden who just referred to Glasgow's climate conference as the G26, might serve only one term. Nor am I the only one who considers America's vice president an incompetent dolt who harbors no genuine political convictions, emits a compulsive, mirthless cackle under stress, and only achieved her office by dint of sex, ethnicity, and race. Let's reserve Veep, couldn't we at least have elected Julia Louise Dreyfus for future discussion? Maybe something will indeed come out of left field, and I won't have to face it. But right now, I'm looking in wide-eyed horror at Kamala versus the Donald in 2024, as if standing mid-motorway with the two headlights of an HGV barreling towards me and not being able to move. That was Lionel Shriver. Next we have Kit Wilson. Facebook has rebranded itself as Meta, and last month, Chief Executive Mark Zuckerberg announced the creation of 10,000 jobs to help build the Metaverse, a concept so radical, nobody yet knows what it actually is. People in the media tend to describe it as a 3D version of the internet. Facebook describes it rather vaguely as a network of Virtual spaces where you can create and explore with other people who aren't in the same physical space as you. Some suspect it might actually be hell. The term metaverse first appeared in Neil Stevenson's 1992 novel Snow Crash, in which future humans distract themselves from economic collapse by submerging themselves in a parallel virtual reality world. The contemporary meaning appears to be a little different. Rather than a simulation we tap into only for entertainment, like a VR game, the metaverse is what happens when that simulation and the real world merge entirely. Imagine you're out walking, enjoying the splash of autumnal light in the oak trees. You decide to show your friend the view. You call her and, thanks to your augmented reality goggles, her lifelike hologram bursts into existence in front of you. She, meanwhile, is at home wearing a headset too, and thanks to the metaverse, mirror world can suddenly see exactly what you do. The mirror world is a full-scale, real-time, three-dimensional digital replica of the entire planet, right down to the last millimeter, recreated by hundreds of thousands of drones and millions of microscopic cameras planted in every street, as well as in everyone's headsets, of course, all scanning and refreshing the landscape. After admiring the sun-bright leaves for a moment, your friend wonders what the same landscape looks like in winter. Instantly, your headsets transport you back to a digitised blizzard from February. Then, waving your hand over a tree, you trigger a hyperlink that tells you all about oak trees, 
or the exact location of England's other oak woods. Bring, your boss is calling. So you say goodbye to your friend, select a digital suit for your avatar that you bought the previous week with Bitcoin, and boot up the mirror world of the office meeting room. None of this exaggerates what Facebook and other companies have in mind. Our current experiments in virtual reality will, they believe, evolve into a sophisticated digital ecosystem whose tentacles will poke back into our real world at every scene. Headsets, phones, watches, headphones and smart devices of all kinds. We might do our supermarket shop virtually and then have products delivered by drone. We might overlay our cities with digital clickable street art on every wall. Over the course of any given day, we'll find ourselves at a hundred different points on the infinite spectrum between the wholly virtual and the wholly analogue. We might dip into some simulated fantasy game populated entirely by digital alien creatures and then bring back one of these creatures into our augmented real world before locking the creature temporarily in our TV while we take off our goggles to shower. Moving between the various levels of immersion will be seamless to the extent that we'll no longer think of the synthetic and the real as distinct realms. There are technical hurdles, of course. In April, Zuckerberg tweeted that squeezing supercomputers inside glasses frames was the greatest challenge of our age, the key to bringing our physical and digital worlds together. But assuming such problems can be overcome, the metaverse promises, says Zuck, to spark a fourth industrial revolution, an almost endless range of new economic opportunities in the virtual realm. And technological progress towards this goal is astonishing. Google's Project Starline has already made three-dimensional holographic video calls a reality by using next-generation photo booths. Nomoko is attempting to create an accurate digital twin of the world using drones equipped with high-resolution cameras. Nomoko claims that just 10 of these drones can map a city the size of Zurich in a single day. Microsoft's flight simulator has already replicated whole chunks of the planet, including, according to the writer Matthew Ball, 2 trillion individually rendered trees, 1.5 billion buildings, and nearly every road, mountain, city, and airport globally, all of which look like the real thing because they're based on high-quality scans of the real thing. It also includes real-time twins of actual weather conditions and commercial flights. As for fantasy worlds, Epic Games' Unreal Engine is making photorealistic landscapes and human avatars possible at the click of a button. But surely there's still one insurmountable hurdle. No matter how good VR headsets get, won't the digital realm always just lack the fundamental physicality of reality? Here we are, admittedly, entering the realm of sci-fi. But there are at least two ways around the problem of physicality. The first involves specially designed machinery that acts as a physical substitute for the real thing. We've already seen crude attempts at mimicking contact over long distances, such as Cute Circuit's Hug Shirt and Lavotic's Kissinger, which promises to replicate the thrill of a good snog by imitating and recreating the lip movement of both users in real time using two digitally connected artificial lips. Isn't it possible to imagine then a graphene-thin exoskeleton that simulates the warm throb of Mediterranean sun against our skin? The second solution would be neural implants, perhaps something like Elon Musk's Neuralink, that trick us into perceiving sensations that aren't there.
You and I might sit in the same virtual pub, each eating synthetic protein cubes that the chips in our brains trick us into believing are scampy from a shared platter. Quite how far this stuff can go depends on where you think the physical limits are. Is Google's Ray Kurzweil right that by the end of this decade, normal eating will be replaced by nutritional nanosystems? Who knows? But it's likely that the metaverse will revolutionise our lives long before then, and not, of course, all for the good. Many risks are well documented. The prospect of fake avatars, digital stalkers, authoritarian surveillance states. But worst will be the dissolution of internal privacy. We tend these days to think of privacy in terms of data. Who has the right to know what about us? But privacy has a second meaning. Freedom from disturbance. Having peace and privacy. And it's hard to see how even our innermost thoughts can be fortified against the metaverse. Author Patricia Lockwood once wrote, If I look at a phone first thing, the phone becomes my brain for the day. Such concern will soon seem like a quaint relic from a time when the internet still existed on actual devices, physical objects we could pick up and put down, and even occasionally turn off. Before long, if metaverse enthusiasts are right, every cubic centimetre of the world will pulsate with digital information. Hyperlinks, adverts, tips, reminders. Paul Kingsnorth likes to quip that civilization is three days deep. That is... It takes three days without technology simply to experience the world around you with genuine human attention. The metaverse would preclude such a possibility. Opting out altogether, though, will likely prove impossible, as unthinkable as abandoning electricity is today. You couldn't simply choose to visit an actual shop because they wouldn't exist. Why pay rent on a physical store when you can simply offer a virtual one and require customers to try on digital replica garments. Purchases will be delivered by drone from warehouses. Perhaps nostalgic for the old days, we'll live in augmented reality, in quaint virtual villages with virtual pubs, while around us in actual fact the unaugmented world becomes a sea of warehouses, server farms and drones. Can such a fate be avoided? It's hard to see how. Though it sucked making the headlines, The metaverse is the organic result of millions of decisions all of us are making right now. We can only hope our individual human selves can somehow survive their absorption into the metaverse's hive mind. That was Kit Wilson. Next we have Peter Hannington. I adore haiku. They got me through the past year. Peter Hannington. One of the more encouraging developments for the past year and a half has been the number of us who, instead of turning to drink, have been turning to haiku. Haiku hashtags have been popping up on social media since the start of the pandemic. It turns out that 17 syllables in that classic 575 formation are just what we need when we're trying to express how we feel about these unsettling times. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and the rest have proved to be the perfect medium for this short-form poetry. Of course, the quality is mixed. Some of the hashtags attract efforts that are less narrow road to deep north than quick jab to left arm. But the same could be said of any open-entry poetry competition. Those who spend a little time reading, for example, the staff haiku page on the website for Duke University Hospital, North Carolina, will be rewarded with poems that are poignant, profound, and sometimes just plain sad. 
This was the contribution from the hospital chaplain, Ashley Akin. Holds up the iPad. Family says goodbye from screen. Prayers. Last breaths taken. National Public Radio's Open Invitational asked people to focus on social distancing, and listener Jesse Glutzman responded with a haiku that described his daily commute. Sniffling and sneezing, my head floats, my mind fogs over. Promise it's a cold. The rediscovery of the charms of haiku, tanka, katuata, etc. is not just an American phenomenon. The British Haiku Society has reported a steady increase in membership. The editor of the short poetry journal Hedgerow, Caroline Scan, says this is a definite moment. Quotes, Many people have been turning to haiku in lockdown, and I've received a significantly increased number of submissions for Hedgerow. The interest and enthusiasm is especially marked among the young, secondary school students, and even younger, she says. Scan hopes that this fleeting interest might be turned into something more lasting and valuable, namely a better understanding of what the poetry is about, and a commitment to take it seriously and teach it properly. She says, although haiku is taught as part of the curriculum, most teachers still seem to lack a firm grasp of what haiku is, and can be, there is still too much focus on the form as opposed to the content, she says. While many people are familiar with the traditional 575 haiku pattern, what is perhaps less well known is that an effective haiku will often also include a kigo, a reference to the seasons that places it in time and provides a backdrop to the action. Many haiku simply name the season, while others include a word that evokes it, such as blossom or blanket. The other ingredients of a successful haiku are trickier to put your finger on. Connoisseurs of the form will look for what they call the kie, a cut that provides the space between one image and the next. A useful definition of what a good haiku should include comes from Haru Shirani, a professor of Japanese literature. It should seek out new and revealing perspectives on the human and physical condition, focusing on the immediate physical world around us. Perhaps this is why haiku have suddenly become so popular as we try to make sense of the past few years. Like many, I have knocked out the odd haiku in my time, but I became borderline obsessed when I was trying to come up with a way of colouring in a not entirely unsympathetic psychopath called Jags, a character in my most recent novel. One of his several quirks is a fondness for thinking up haiku in between doing unthinkable things to people. For instance... A blinding blue sky, convicts out on day release, planting wild poppies. I was vaguely aware that Ian Fleming had used the same trick to memorable effect in You Only Live Twice. Bond himself wrote a haiku-esque poem for his friend Tiger Tanaka. You only live twice, once when you're born, once when you look death in the face. It wasn't until I spoke to the British Haiku Society and that walking encyclopedia of crime writing, Mike Ripley, that I realised how many writers have relied on a similar trope of having a character who is interested in short poetry. The hero of Edmund Crispin's classic The Moving Toy Shop is a poet. Judge D, the 7th century Chinese detective created by Robert Van Gulick, is plagued by a poet in the haunted monastery. Michael Innes gave us a detective called John Appleby, who quotes poetry at every opportunity in the secret vanguard. And of course there is the mighty P.D. James, 
and her wonderful creation, the poet-slash-detective Adam Dalgleish. Finally, there was J.D. Salinger, who penned one of the most memorable fictional short poems for Seymour Glass in Franny and Zooey. The little girl on the plane who turned her doll's head around to look at me. People do all sorts of odd things in order to stay sane. Uncovering fictional figures with a fondness for haiku and poetry more generally has proved to be a delightful rabbit hole to tumble down. I can thoroughly recommend it. That was Peter Hannington. And finally, Robert Porter. Notes on Bagpipes by Robert Porter Many people love to hate bagpipes. Everyone from William Shakespeare to Alfred Hitchcock has held them in contempt. For some, they are almost a form of punishment. Last week, a frustrated motorist blasted bagpipe music in the faces of Insulate Britain protesters on the M25 before he was stopped by police. Most pipers will tell you they are sick of hearing that the definition of a gentleman is someone who knows how to play the bagpipes and doesn't. Equally, someone once told me the joke that the bagpipes are an ingenious breathalyzer test. You blow into the bag, and if the noise that comes out doesn't want to make you kill yourself, you aren't drunk enough. Despite bagpipes' supposed unpopularity, though, bagpiping is in its ascendancy in Britain. The great Highland bagpipes are preeminent, but the Irish Inland pipes perhaps come a close second, and then there are the Northumbrian pipes, the Scottish small pipes, the border pipes and the Cornish pipes, to name a few. I play the Scottish small pipes, which, although they have the same tunes and fingering as the Great Highland bagpipe, are reminiscent of the Illan pipes because you blow the bag with a bellows strapped to an arm rather than with a mouthpiece. Until you become sufficiently competent, this makes you look a bit like a chicken desperately trying to take off as you negotiated the bellows and bag with alternate elbows. The repertoire that can be played on the small pipes is vast. The usual marches, strathspeys and reels beloved of the great Highland bagpipers can be attempted, as can Pibruch, known to Sassanax as Scottish laments, although many Pibruch players would argue that it can only properly be played on the great Highland bagpipe, a contention with which I disagree. Much of the Irish Illin piping repertoire can be adapted to the small pipes with a little ingenuity. For instance, the beautiful slow air Fanny Power by the 18th century blind Irish harpist Turlough O'Carolan rises to the second octave in the second part with the illan pipes, but a small pipes arrangement can be devised whereby the melody modulates down to G with a satisfactory effect. It's relatively impossible to capture the beauty of all those evocative Irish laments on the small pipes, which is a great shame but then the Illan pipers do not have the beauty of the Pibruch cannon to fall back on. The bagpipes have encouraged me to travel to exotic places around the globe. I've played the mysterious Pibruch the Glen is Mine at Concordia in Pakistan, surrounded by vast peaks at the foot of K2, and Fanny Power on my penny whistle as I walked in the African bush with a baby black rhino. My ultimate piping experience was when I bungee-jumped off the Victoria Falls Bridge in Zimbabwe with my pipes strapped round me as I played Scotland the Brave and plummeted into the dense spray from the river below. It was good for my mental health, less so 
for the reads. That was Robert Porter. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on our Best of the Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these. Thank you for listening and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week.